0: From China's policy to eradicate digital illiteracy within five years to the investment exceeding 1 billion US dollars in Shanghai's Web3 development, Ashley Dudarnock lives and breeds the Chinese digital ecosystem and knows exactly how to share the cultural and technical norms of the East to listeners from the West. In today's episode, be prepared to learn about the technology being leveraged by luxury brands in the world's largest luxury market, China. Tech Powered Luxury is proud to be sponsored by Seabody, an Irish-based tech-powered beauty and wellness brand. Seabody has developed a unique next-gen approach to seaweed-based skincare and supplements. Luxury powered by technology with innovation at its core is exactly what this podcast is about. Find Seabody on Instagram or at seabody.com to discover their innovative products. Hello and welcome to Tech Powered Luxury, your weekly podcast dedicated to the intersection of the luxury and technology industries. The goal of each of these episodes is to bring international and actionable insights to people passionate about the luxury and tech industries. For today's episode of Tech Powered Luxury, we have Hong Kong based Ashley Dudaranok joining us. I've been following Ashley on LinkedIn for many years, where she shares daily updates on all things China and tech with incredibly detailed reports. And snippets of what day-to-day life is like in Asia. With real life case studies or sometimes just a simple video that went viral on Chinese social media, Ashley shares the cultural references and the KPIs so that her LinkedIn community of almost 85,000 people can learn and see the reality of day-to-day life in China. Ashley is the founder of three different companies, Alarice Chozan and Fire by Ashley, all of which we'll hear more about later. She is a three times Amazon best-selling author, has been named a LinkedIn top voice in marketing and is one of Asia's top 25 innovators. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) On top of that, Ashley is super knowledgeable on the luxury industry, which is why I'm really excited to speak with her today and learn about how tech is powering the luxury industry in China. Ashley, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Ashley. It is such a joy to be here.
0: I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today to share your story and inspire brands, creatives, and the industry insiders on all things China. So to get started, I would like to ask you, who are you and what led you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, well, you've done a phenomenal introduction already, Ashley. And uh, I am essentially a China watcher, um, a serial entrepreneur, as you mentioned, and digital marketing professional with focus on Web3 and uh, a book author. Um, when it comes to what led me where I am today, well, I was born in the um, Far East and very close to actually mainland China border. And when I was 17 years old, I moved to mainland China, and I saw this whole country going through digital transformation. And that was the time when social media was born globally, you know, in 2006, seven, eight, nine, etc. And it just took a completely different shape in China. And I felt that, you know, being interested in marketing, and seeing how China is moving with this unprecedented China speed, that was a fantastic opportunity to be just you know in the right place in the right time and build the bridges between the west and china so yes that's how i decided to focus on this market uh, marketing china chinese consumers and later on it evolved right into social plus right there's a social commerce or the new retail and then technology and right now we talk about web 3 and the metaverse and you know all that because you know back 15 20 years ago it was not this was not so digital and a lot of people frankly not believe that you could actually do business online so um yeah that's where i am and i'm extremely excited to be that bridge
0: fantastic two things you mentioned there web3 we'll definitely discuss that later and secondly being that bridge and i see you as not being just a bridge from offline to offline but also from from east to west and vice versa so that's why we have you here today to take as much of your knowledge as possible on those two areas So I know that you have been incredibly passionate about the role that women have in society and in business. So for anyone who hasn't watched it, Ashley actually has a really powerful TED talk titled What Soviet Female Icons and Chinese Shoe Sellers Taught Me. So could you please tell us about how you got started? What were the biggest challenges in becoming an industry leader in bridging East and West and when it comes to digital?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was born in the Soviet Union, and uh, that's what I think the TED talk is about, is that communist countries, despite all the faults and despite the current geopolitical developments that we're all shocked uh, about, communist uh, economies somehow empowered women out of ideology and practical necessity. And I believe that I had the privilege of being raised by very strong women and very feminist, what you would call now feminist men. And um, as a girl, I always thought that everything and anything is possible. And uh, you know, the first woman in space was was uh, Russian. We had a lot of movies that empowered those the um, gender gender equality in many ways. Where, for example, the movie was about. Uh, a boss a female boss uh, and her subordinate male subordinate and they have basically a romance an office romance so it was it was all kind of normal in the late soviet uh, era and then when i came to china i was 17 years old that concept of um, having no limits for women was further reinforced because while Russian side, back then it was early Russia. It was very hostile to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship was also very government-linked and there was obviously a lot of uh, division, yeah, dividing the assets and resources of the country. In China, it was completely different. Since Deng uh, Xiaoping uh, started promoting entrepreneurship, everybody was hustling and women were running the show. Um, there were Uh, shoe sellers on the streets. There were basically uh, this mid-sized and small-sized business. A lot of them were women. So maybe not in manufacturing production as such, but in all sorts of other industries. So it was extremely empowering to see. Basically, you see that this is the future, that there's no way around that this is an absolute future. When I got to China, it was 2006. Social media globally was just being birthed. Mm -hmm. China as the market was just becoming uh, more middle class focused So there were so many developments, the infrastructure, the consumers finally had the money. Um, The brands were entering the country. For example, I was Mm -hmm. in the city called Chongqing, which is central China. It's not really Beijing or Shanghai. And just before I arrived to to Chongqing, they opened their first McDonald's. So you can imagine that. (laughs) Right. But within a couple of years, within four years, we had it all. We had luxury brands. We had, um, you name it, cars, bags, uh, luxury accommodation pools and whatever else so that speed was incredible so basically two things were happening in china one is the market itself was very quickly upgrading and becoming more middle class driven and um, with that digitalization when it comes to especially social media and in the early days western social platforms were also in the market so we had google we had facebook and many other uh, platforms but chinese uh, innovated on top of those platforms. So they basically copied what Twitter used to be, plus Facebook, plus whatever else, and then they mm-hmm. built on top of it and the platforms evolved incredibly. So uh, this is uh, where essentially it uh, took place. So I d- I decided to uh, you know, be in China, to learn from China and to bring China to the world in terms of helping foreigners to understand this market and work in this market because so many back then were really mm, sceptical whether this is the yeah. right market to sell. They thought, oh, maybe it's like India, you know, in India in the past 15 years nothing really happened and this is not really the market to sell our products. But it is. It has proven proven a lot of people wrong. And number two, of course, uh, right now it's a lot of focus on bringing China to the world because despite our differences, there's a lot of things that we can learn from China. And one thing that I think is very admirable when it comes to Chinese traditional culture is no matter how much they disagree with you traditionally. Any yes. um, uh, kind of, um, uh, let's say, army general yeah, in ancient China taking over a certain region, no matter how much they disagree, they can always learn from you. So they never lose the ability to learn. And when it comes to the West, um, let's say brands or some of the headquarters yeah, or yeah. Um, other aspects of it, it's very sometimes difficult for people to disagree and yet still learn.
0: Disagree and learn. That's something that I think everyone will take away from this podcast today. So, actually, before we dive into further topics, did you already speak Chinese when you arrived in China? <laughs>
1: So I took a half a year uh, basically tutoring uh, before I went to China because I knew I'm going to be relocating to China about a year before I actually made the move. So since I was 16, um, I knew that I'm going to go to China. And then I took half a year courses one-on-one with, a, with a, a Chinese instructor, which was fantastic. But to say the least, it wasn't enough to actually yeah. operate my daily, daily life in China. So uh, when I uh, arrived in the country, I could speak some. And then I took one year course in uh, Chongqing Normal University to study the language. And uh, within half a year of arriving to China, I passed HSK, which is Hanyu Shipping Culture. It's like, it's like an IELTS for Chinese language. Yes. And uh, that also allowed me to um, enter university and to study business administration and economics together with Chinese students in Chinese. So I did my higher Algebra, linear algebra and mathematics in Chinese with Chinese students.
0: Incredible. Wow. OK, well, on that note, actually, because this podcast is really about helping people learn, I would love to ask you about your own educational journey and what brought you to where you are today and all the knowledge that you have.
1: I believe that learning is so important. So basically, after people graduate from school or university, very often their learning curve kind of stops, especially if you've already been in a role. Um, let's say you entered a company, you've been in a role for one year or two years. So this learning curve is not as sharp anymore. And this is a huge mistake because the world is evolving so fast and you need to stay on top of um, on top of those developments in order to stay competitive. Remember one thing, no matter which company or role you work in, your company is only as competitive as you, each individual, each team member, um, basically as, as much as you are competitive in the market. So in other words, if you go out in the market, would other companies want to hire you for the role that you are doing in company A, right? And you need to continuously upskill yourself. Uh, so for me, um, the best way to push myself to learn consistently is number one going into business because by default being in business means you need to learn so many different things about various areas of, of, of leadership self-leadership team leadership right um, mm-hmm. running a business doing business development marketing etc and the second thing that pushes me to learn continuously is thought leadership where I, am, I have made a conscious commitment and decision to continue sharing my knowledge with a broader network in order to make other people's life easier. And as yeah. I've made that commitment and the public one, um, and I have a community that, You know, kind of expect this content by now, it forces me to learn. Even if I don't Mm -hmm. feel like it, I know that every day the content needs to come out. Every day I need to um, essentially uh, talk about something. So it pushes uh, you to develop. And uh, another very crucial way to uh, look at your growth is working on your mindset. Because if something, especially for entrepreneurs, but I think it is true for anyone and everyone, if something is not working in your business or if you are not a business owner in your life, then you need to work on yourself first. Because your business will not outperform the mindset of the founder. And working on yourself, it means working on your energy levels, working on your the way you think. Your, is it positive or negative thoughts? Are you a calculated optimist? Are you, again, the person with the highest energy in the room? Um, all these kind of soft skills, but they are the hardest skills you can find out there. So for me, Mm. uh, in my learning journey, a lot of focus was on getting my mindset to the next level, um, studying psychology, uh, going through tons of online courses, and basically going and getting them.
0: Fantastic. It sounds like, Ashley, you're not only a lifelong learner, but you're also a holistic learner. So it's, it's all elements. And I think that's really important, especially in business, because you're going to be constantly faced with challenges and also change. And it seems like your approach to tackling change is actually being on top of it and sharing about the change, which I really like. And having, um, yeah, made that commitment, a public one, like you said, people do expect the updates from you. But every time I go to LinkedIn, I wonder, what is Ashley going to share today? And what am I going to learn? Because every time you're sharing something, absolutely, I learn something, which is amazing. So thank you for talking us through your, your educational journey, which I think is not only a learning one, but also a teaching one. Um, So we know you have an incredible wealth of knowledge when it comes to digital marketing and the tech infrastructure, particularly in China. So perhaps most importantly, you understand the culture because you cannot adapt a marketing strategy from the West to the East without understanding the culture. So maybe if you could talk to us about how the culture in modern China has shifted and allowed the country to be the single most important one for the luxury industry.
1: So when it comes to cultural shifts in China it is impossible to generalize it and summarize it in you know 10 minutes because it's been a tectonic shift it's it's huge Um, China is not uh, a small country. It's huge geographically population wise. There are tons of subcultures. You know, people in Guangdong think completely different than people, uh, let's say in Beijing. Um, The north of China has about 20 to 30% of the country's wealth and also country's population. So the south of China is a lot wealthier. So there's tons of regional differences. And again, differences in circumstances of different, um, of different, um, I don't know, minorities. Um, um, so if we need to generalize, I would say that China has definitely become um, a lot more self-aware. Um, they have become a lot more wealthy and um, um, with it confident. But at the same time, as always, it comes with some uh, challenges, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes specifically to luxury, because, again, it's very difficult to talk in general. But when it comes to luxury in particular, a lot of uh, you know, observers out there think that, oh, China came from, you know, oh, there was this cultural revolution and people were uh, pursuing simple lives and then suddenly they became a bit wealthier and now they want all this luxury to kind of counter the hardships that Mm. they had uh, 60, 70 years back, which is not true because China for uh, centuries and even thousands of years, they were they, they, they really had this, you know, culture and focus and most importantly, appreciation when it comes to craftsmanship and hence mm-hmm. luxury. And um, yes. uh, why do we have, uh, you know, silk, uh, beautiful silk outfits or the china or uh, even the Chinese cuisine? It's one of the most Um, plentiful cuisines in the world because they recorded recipes thousands of years before anybody else wrote the first cookbook in the West, right? So uh, China had this focus on uh, luxury and appreciated craftsmanship long before the Cultural Revolution. Number two, um, when the country started becoming more wealthy and when wealth Mm -hmm. creation stopped being frowned upon, um, using your money to purchase comforts became a way to kind of differentiate yourself and uh, to reward yourself. And that, again, was linked with this kind of deeper um, concept of Chinese mianzi, right? Your face, having the face and building your face and showing your face. Um, In the early days, in order to kind of build your face, you could just buy foreign products. In the very early days, or if you went uh, for I do not know uh, American toothpaste versus Chinese, oh, you already kind of uh, kind of different. <laughs> and later on, uh, when it came to luxury brands, oh, France, France in China sta- stands for a country with long luxury traditions, or Switzerland when it comes to watches mm-hmm. or chocolate, etc. So this kind of country branding is there. It was very powerful in China. You could back in the day, and I- I'm talking about 2000, um, maybe three, four, or five. You could, in order to, for example, sell your cosmetic product, you could just put made in New Zealand, made in Australia, made in France, made in the USA, and plaster a foreign foreign model on, on the bottle of your shampoo or skincare product, and you could sell. But that lost its relevance with the evolution of Chinese consumer. Right now, Chinese consumers are the most sophisticated consumers in the world. They know what they don't want. And they don't want generalizations. They want want the brand to uh, speak with them, to appeal with them. They want high quality. They want good prices. If they are willing to pay a lot of money, like basically high luxury, Mm -hmm. then they want it to be super exclusive. They focus on, you know, um, service a lot. And right now, like the next evolution after that, that has just begun is luxury becomes sort of not similar not equivalent not 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 equal to sustainability but very close to that so if i buy a luxury product likely it's going to last and if it's going to last you know it's going to have less impact on the environment etc so there's been a huge huge Uh, change. And these evolution steps um, are enormous. Uh, Today, for example, China's middle class is the largest in the world. It's more than um, 109, I believe, million people and growing. Um, And when it comes to luxury consumers, if we're looking also at some numbers, right, And when it comes to luxury consumers uh, in China, they are very young, more than 50% of them are uh, born after 1990. So they are not yet 30, basically two years old. Um, And uh, yeah, and and actually 40% of total luxury spend in China, which is also, I think, very unique for this market. 40% of total luxury sales in China are spent by heavy spending consumers. Those that annually buy products for about 47,000 US dollars.
0: Wow. So you have kind of the perfect storm, not just culturally, but also in terms of the demographics right now, because this is a very young consumer group, the most connected in the world, arguably because of the high adoption of technology in China, which all for me, of course, points towards why we're here today. And it's discussing the role of technology in the luxury industry and from your perspective, how brands can really conquer the Chinese market by coming in with the best localized marketing strategies. Because like you said, it's not like it was 10 years ago. Now, the Chinese luxury consumer is the most sophisticated. They have the most information at their fingertips. They have all of the, the niche apps that we haven't even really heard of in the West for helping them find, locate, and you know, really look at the pricing of what they're going to purchase. So For brands listening today who perhaps have never engaged with the Chinese market but are interested in having a successful Chinese New Year activation, which is really just around the corner, what would your advice be to just get started?
1: Well, one thing that you need to understand is that this country branding, the pure push for the Western, high quality product with some history, it's sort of gone by now. Really, it's gone. So... There is right now a strong demand for traditional culture and um, China-made products and Chinese craftsmanship. So even if you are a Western brand and even if you are very far away from Chinese traditional um, you know, culture, you need to find your ways to be locally relevant. And that can be colors, products, designs, collaborations, I don't know, bloggers that you involve, not just to promote and to be a channel to sell your products, but to really co-create something together. So this is probably the most crucial point for this upcoming CNY. You need to be culturally relevant and traditional Chinese culture already has received social recognition. It's not going anywhere. And when it comes to luxury, people want to see that link, especially when we are celebrating CNY, which is a traditional Chinese holiday. So it cannot be just, oh my God, let us use uh, red color and gold color and uh, let us, I do not know. um, For example, right now we have the um, Uh, year of, uh, I believe it is, uh, water rabbit. Yeah, 2023 is going to be a year of water rabbit. So let us put rabbit everywhere on our designs. It's not going to cut it anymore. Yeah, you need to go deeper. Uh, And you need to also understand your subculture. Who exactly within the Chinese Gen Z are you targeting, right? Um, And that's where collaborations are important. I've just now mentioned that the next year is going to be water rabbit, And uh, there's actually a traditional Chinese brand of uh, candy. It's a traditional kind of white candy, which is called White Rabbit. So for next year, White Rabbit is fully booked when it comes to collaborations because there's a play of words. And they are not even, again, they're not even a luxury brand, right? They are candy. They are brand of traditional Chinese candy and uh, they've previously collaborated with tons of uh, brands uh, for example cosmetics and fashion etc where they put their prints and designs and flavors and create fragrances with this candy which a lot of gen z's right now consider their childhood memory because when you were a child uh, back in the day let's say 30 years ago or or 25 you would actually get it as a treat so it's something very okay. traditional chinese yeah so uh, looking at something like that you're finding your white rabbit and collaborating with them and mm-hmm. co-creating a collection and um, really even if you know the time is already probably so uh, short to actually develop products together but um, Finding a way to really make making that cultural um, link, um, designs and collapse. Uh, and the other thing is, of course, uh, bloggers, KOLs, Hikini opinion leaders, influencers. So they are in a very tight spot right now. We've all heard and we've all seen uh, challenges when it comes to bloggers, right? Many of them were banned. We see our live wow. streamers, some banned and not on the platform. Some have made their comeback. We've also seen some popular. Uh, let 's say celebrities and uh, tv stars being been uh, been uh, publicly kind of disgraced yeah and and cancelled, so you need to be very careful who do you choose to collaborate with so brand audit um, or I would say blogger audit is very necessary um, and you previously, the matrix was if you have uh, two or three big headliners and uh, about 15 to 20 small bloggers promoting you, then you can launch your brand in China or you can launch a campaign or you can launch whatever, a holiday celebration. Mm-hmm. Right now, the matrix is very different because very few uh, brands are willing to bet on the big guys because if yeah. you succeed big, there's only that much that you're getting out of it, primarily chamber effect. Chamber effect is when the headliner, it's going to be super expensive. You're going to lose money with collaboration, but after yeah. collaboration, you're going to have two or three months of, um, sales that are higher than usual, and you're going to probably break even or make your money back, etc. But when it comes to now, brands typically want to diversify go through uh, KOCs, key opinion consumers, yep. right, and seed more organically. So, yeah, this is also something to consider for this year and why. What is your strategy? Still one or two relevant headliners would be fun, but they must be booked by now. And also yep. ask yourself, <laughs> what are you doing with your KOCs? Yeah, What are you doing with, with, with those smaller guys that are actually um, talking more genuinely to and with your brand?
0: Absolutely. So perhaps for brands who haven't really engaged or prepared for this Chinese New Year, the best thing to do is keep a really close eye on what's happening, learn, absorb and plan now for 2024, because I know working on the Chinese market requires also a huge amount of planning in advance like you said, for booking your KOLs, your KOCs, but also your brand partnerships and figuring out what the right strategy is for your brand, what's the most relevant. It definitely takes some time and engaging with experts. I think that's the most important thing. Speak to people on the ground who speak Chinese, who have that expertise and who can give you that direct feedback about your concepts and ideas as well. Absolutely. Tech-powered luxury sponsor, Seabody, uses state-of-the-art blue biotechnologies and marine biodiscovery. Seabody includes the most potent and closest to nature molecules in their ranges of skincare and supplements. You can discover more about Seabody on Instagram or at seabody.com. You mentioned it at the very beginning, and I said we were going to touch back on the topic, when it comes to Web3 and reaching those Gen Z Chinese consumers. China has been leading the way and it is actually the only market where the male and female ratio of gamers is almost equal. So you have lots of different factors in there making it a very interesting place. Do you see any brands really succeeding in engaging with Web3 in China? And what advice would you give to industry insiders looking to get started in Web3 for the Chinese market?
1: Yeah so when it comes to web 3 there's uh, I think first we need to define what it means because just like the metaverse you know it suddenly became a buzzword and people are using it uh, in all sorts of ways so when it comes to web 3 uh, ultimately it's the concept of the next evolution of the internet right which combines decentralization blockchain and token based economies and it's all kind of digital world some people also put in, as you said, ACG, anime, comics, games, uh, metaverse, which is extended reality, et cetera, all in this Web3 future. So we're going to talk about this broader Web3, right, which includes ACG, which includes metaverse, which includes this kind of digital version of reality. Um, so China is at this moment the country which has implemented Web3 most in the world, mm-hmm. It's not about the concepts, it's about the scale of implementation. And there's a variety of reasons for that. First of all, digitalization is China's national strategy. And if you want to know what is the national strategy of China, you look at their five-year plans. So it's very clear what are we going to do. And actually, Web3 digitalization and also eradicating digital illiteracy is on China's agenda. And every time they say these are our goals, they are going to reach them. And very often, not even within five years, but within three or four. So uh, it is a national policy. National policy means uh, the government is pushing it down to local. So central government pushes it down to local government and local governments in China, like provincial and city governments, they compete with each other for the budget. So they have very strict KPIs, very similar to Singapore uh, model, where they have very strict KPIs in the government to attract talent, companies, da-da-da-da-da. So they give incentives to businesses um, and they collaborate with tech giants. So another thing that China has, which is very unique, why they're able to move into Web3 so fast is because they have tech giants that are rather Mm. complete. Yeah, so it's not just, oh, some tech giant that runs a social media network, but Mm. they have their retail, they have their um, social media, they have their entertainment branch, they have their payment systems, and tons and tons of other things, and very strong data analytic centers. Um, So tech giants, including Baba, including Tencent, Meituan, including, obviously, ByteDance, etc., are able to also implement that. And they are buying companies. They're investing, obviously, themselves to develop that. Um, Another thing that makes China quite unique here is that sheer scale of population. I mean, there's one4 Four billion people, and majority of adult population, vast majority, is online, and not just online as consumers of content and information mm-hmm. and services, but also as somebody who actively participates in trade, meaning they sell their services, products, um, including yeah. I don't know, farmers in Guilin, and and you know, and uh, and a person selling underwear from her online store in in Shanghai, so. Um all that makes China kind of unique here, plus there's cheap manufacturing right plus yeah. there's this speed of innovation so say having said all that, I would like to um, highlight that at this moment the real true web three economy has not yet been built anywhere, so it is in the process of being built. And in China, it's being built in a very different way compared to the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, it's more wild innovation driven by companies and scenarios. In China, it's more controlled, um, government-led, and it's basically all about virtual complementing Physical, physical complementing virtual, not full transfer into the virtual world. So basically, ready player one is very unlikely to happen uh, within the next uh, 10 years uh, in the China market. Um, When it comes to, for example, metaverse, right? It's it's one of the examples. Mm, uh, In the West, uh, many companies are building scenario-driven silos, where you can, for example, come in and uh, participate in an expo through this virtual setup or a concert. In China right now today, the focus is on building the clones of cities, city clones, like a clone of Shanghai, a clone of Shenzhen, and then populate it with businesses and then bring people in there to work, to shop, to game, to have fun. So it's a very different route. Yeah. So when you, um, your, your, because your question was, it was a very long introduction, but your question was, um, what about you know some of the brands that are doing really well when it comes to Web3? Yeah. I don't think that brands are, currently in position to participate in something that's not yet been built. Of course, there are brands like McDonald's, right? Like uh, we had L'Oreal doing great things when they launched their NFTs and they created a game. And somebody uh, recently, there's been a local Chinese uh, company that actually they are uh, an events company and they put together a metaverse wedding setup where if your guests, because China is still uh, undergoing certain lockdowns here and there, right? So if your guests are not able to attend your wedding, they can also join your metaverse wedding, which is wow. very gamified. I've and have heard it all now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So these uh, companies are testing out certain scenarios and are doing well. Um, in terms of the companies driving Um, Web 3 in China, then these are tech giants, still Baba, still Tencent, um, uh, a couple of uh, yeah Baidu is very active in the area. And I think um, what's holding it a little bit back is that we don't yet have 6G. And 6G was promised to be um, commercially available in China by 2030. So that Huawei and uh, I, I believe China Mobile and um, uh, many other uh, companies have already committed to this goal and they were already tests earlier this year by Nan- Nanjing um, Purple uh, Cow Lab uh, with the 6G speeds. So once 6G is there and once this infrastructure, the digital clones of cities, that is when by uh, 28 by 30. This is when we're going to see actual business cases where brands coming in and doing something meaningful. Right now, in my personal view, it is, okay, NFT campaign or a little bit of buzz here, or we created a token to track your uh, product from manufacturer to, I don't know, to your table. So these are great user cases, but it's not real Web3 because the environment has not yet been built. If if you know what I mean, Ashley, does it make sense?
0: Yeah, and I think that's Giving brands and companies the opportunity, though, to get involved, to be a part of how that's going to be shaped, to plan ahead, and also to have these innovative, fun concepts and campaigns. There's nothing wrong with that, and like you said, it actually creates a lot of buzz and it can be quite inclusive.
1: Absolutely. We've we've, uh, actually this year uh, we've had so many requests from brands to come up with metaverse strategy. It was very fun and new request because previously uh, we do like marketing strategy and research and planning and whatever else, but this this was the first year when they said, we want to know for China what is going to be our metaverse strategy. And then we <laughs> have to always go back and explain that, yes, this is metaverse strategy, but it's still for the purpose of sales and marketing. And here are a few tools that we can experiment with. There are some partnerships that we can have with tech giants to learn for China and also to learn some skills and some basically get inspiration for the rest of the world. Yeah. So metaverse strategy, literally, we've never had it before. This year was the first year when metaverse strategy was in demand.
0: And like you said, China has a plan to eradicate digital illiteracy. That's incredible. I don't know any other countries in the world that have said, this is our plan and we're going to make it happen. And like you said, they will make that happen, which means not only will China have, you know, the biggest connected population in the world, but they will be Probably the most advanced in terms of adoption of technology. So this could move very, very fast. And if brands today haven't entered China yet with their digital first strategy, now is the time to go. Because imagine when all of a sudden uh, there's the biggest Web3 economy in the world and the rest of us are behind. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a journey no matter what. But that's super insightful.
1: As I always say, it's going to be, it's never going to be, China is never going to be cheaper. Because it's only becoming more expensive to get the traffic, to get in front of the consumer, to build your infrastructure because it's so completely different. Uh, it's expensive to even hire a local team, you know, professionals. So that are Today, China is the cheapest it will ever be in the next, you know, 30, 40 years.
0: Absolutely. And. Uh... Something you kind of touched on earlier in terms of the cultural shift was to do with sustainability. So I actually mm. saw you recently shared on LinkedIn um, <laughs> that the secondhand luxury goods market in China is valued at over 8 billion US dollars. So huge, 8 billion US dollars, yeah. just the secondhand yeah. luxury goods. So it's yeah. 5% of China's luxury sector. Do you see sustainability as being a driving factor for luxury purchasing decisions in China and you know, what can we expect the second-hand industry to become in in the next years?
1: Absolutely. So sustainability and green agenda and carbon neutrality are, again, China's national policy. So they are going to happen no matter what. Um, A couple of years back, we had this huge buzz about garbage sorting. A lot of people said this is never going to happen, how many countries actually tried and failed, let alone China, where people never sorted their garbage. China was able to do it. Right now, even if you go to a village in the middle of nowhere and it barely has, I don't know, public toilets on the streets and pavements, you have all these uh, color-coded trash bins and you have essentially, um, you know, uh, trash uh, separation and uh, and uh, recycling. So the same thing with carbon neutrality and the same thing with focus on green agenda and green economy and sustainable development. Um, it's going to take time, but What is not going to change is policy, the fact that tech giants are behind it, and the fact that the consumer will get there and will be willing to vote with that dollar. So right now, the consumer's awareness is good enough to say, I like it. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, not good enough to say, I'm going to vote with my dollar. Mm -hmm. If you show me something that's sustainable, but it costs a lot more, I'm like, "Ah, maybe not. Yeah. But it is a journey, right? Previously, they didn't care. There was no awareness. There was no education. There was no understanding. Right now, there's awareness. There's understanding. There is support. But this other element uh, is, is currently missing. Obviously, when it comes to luxury consumers, these are people that are typically higher educated, typically with different means available to them. So, of course, they make more conscious choices. And as I mentioned, right now, more and more, these consumers that are already driving In many ways, for example, when it comes to food, they are driving sustainability because they they want to buy uh, chicken that is, uh, we call it uh, guilt-free. Guilt-free means good for me, good for the environment, and good for society. So there's no children labor in, uh, I don't know, Bangladesh producing this chicken for me. And and, uh, it's good for environment, good for me. It means it's healthy. Mm. It's not uh, full of uh, pesticides or hormones or whatever else. So, this guilt-free status, they usually um, implement it when it comes to in-body, on-body, creams and any kind of food products. And by extension, they also want to purchase products that stand for this guilt-free status. Is it the major driving decision when it comes to luxury? No, it's not. Not at this moment. But is it an important thing to consider? Is it an important talking point for a brand? Yes, because you can connect with people with similar values and um, upper middle class consumers in China, they do have it as one of their values. And especially right now with the pandemic, um, there's been a lot of shifts in mindset. You know, uh, health is number one coming together and having a community and having kind of a balanced life and understanding what this is all about has become even more important. And of course, because China has been um, in lockdowns for longer than the rest of the world, there's a lot of psychological pressure and people want to kind of uh, release it. And um, I think it all kind of comes together in that same message. So long story short, when it comes to sustainability, it's only going to develop um, and it's going to be even more important factor for luxury brands. Indeed, secondhand luxury, the one that you mentioned, is just one way to make this sustainability possible. First way is the brands themselves need to stand for Sustainable production manufacturing again this guilt free status. The second one is second hand luxury, um, as you said, uh, the market in two thousand and twenty was eight billion u s dollars by two thousand and twenty five just in a few years from now it 's going to be around thirty billion u s dollars a lot more than back in two thousand and twenty wow. yes, and second hand luxury. It's not only about sustainability. Secondhand luxury is also because it's a bit cheaper. So um, aspirational consumers can also try it out. It's also because it's very stylish and people are impacted and influenced a lot by a variety of cultures from, let's say, Korea or Taiwan uh, or Japan, even, yeah, where you can mix and match and create this unique style that nobody actually has. So it has this coolness factor, it has this yeah. fashion factor, lifestyle. Plus sustainability, plus the fact that it is actually luxury and you're wearing a piece of history. So it all kind of, kind of comes together. But I do believe in the secondhand luxury market in China as well, as well as the luxury market. It's not going anywhere because premiumization of everything is only going to continue.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Premiumization of everything. <laughs> and that's actually something we're seeing across the board globally. And it's because of all those factors you mentioned, sustainability being one of them, buying things that last longer that lasts forever in the luxury industry if you're buying a handbag especially when you look at the hard luxury and the the higher end brands like Hermès if you have an issue you bring it back it goes to the Hermès spa these bags they have a better life than we do actually so you know it's it's something that you pass on to the next generation and it's not it's not disposable so I'm glad to hear that in China which is the biggest luxury market in the world everything to do with sustainability is becoming more important and the second hand market too so for anyone listening who works with luxury brands It's important actually, if it's going to be at least 10% of your sales or your market, to have a second hand strategy because otherwise it's going to be controlled by someone else or by a different company. And that's kind of what we've seen in the West. You know, it's the likes of Vestiaire Collective, Poshmark, Mm. it's these third party platforms that have come yeah. in and absolutely taken over uh, everything to do with the second hand market which it's interesting to see and
1: these companies are expanding into into asia right now so these companies yes. that you're mentioning they're expanding into asia including uh, looking into china so yeah a brand needs to really step in and uh, and uh, gate itself maybe <laughs> sure so actually i know you're managing
0: multiple businesses you're working with hundreds of companies helping them with their own china digital businesses and you have three best selling books about e-commerce, KOLs and retail in China. So what's what's next for you, if you can tell us?
1: Um, taking, taking business um, not only for China, but also learn from China. So for me right now, a lot of focus. Obviously, I've got a running um, digital marketing agency, which is cool and it is, managed by the team, so I don't need to be there in, you know, day-to-day. Um, the other side of business yeah, Chozan, while it used to focus on, okay, trainings for China, how to make sure marketing teams, how to make sure live streaming is done better, etc. Right now, we get maybe 60-70% of inquiries actually come in from um, tech companies around the world and multinationals around the world wanting to learn from China's digital journey to shorten their learning curve. So, what's next for me? I think, really um, really doubling down on that, Uh, side on that part, learning from China, um, and of course, continuing developing the other business uh, to make sure that I myself have um, a role of an expert in my business, that I'm not running my business day to day, right? That I have managing director and other senior leaders so that I can be an expert and I can also um, probably start other businesses. I really at one point want to create a physical product. I already have a few ideas. Yeah. So it's really cool to be in consulting. It's really cool to be in marketing. It's really cool to be, you know, in this digital space. But at the same time, at one point, you want something physical, something you can grab, yeah. you know, so, something other people can enjoy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I would definitely in the next couple of years be very interested to starting something uh, physical and mm-hmm. uh, yes, and enjoying life. I'm recently into a lot of uh, kind of Gen Z, uh, new generation um Hobbies, So like K-pop and comics and all others, I believe it's very, very important (laughs) to stay relevant and to stay young. And we stop being being young the moment we stop enjoying current things. So I want to Mm -hmm. make sure that I have the time and opportunity to enjoy the current things and, uh, you know, go to Korea for a month and learn K-pop dancing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I mean,
0: you mentioned at the beginning, energy, protecting your energy, having high energy is really important. You have the highest energy (laughs) Anyone listening today, this is going to be like their their morning coffee, but also their morning newspaper from all the learning. So thank you for that. Um, But yeah, Ashley, thank you for sharing your incredible knowledge, actually, in general this morning and for giving us, I think, the best possible masterclass and deep dive into culture in China. More than anything, that's what I've taken away from today. It's actually really understanding not just the overall culture, the subcultures, the regional cultures. It's, it's actually really key. So to finish our podcast episode today, I have one last question for you. And that is, what is the one skill that you would recommend industry insiders start working on today?
1: Live streaming. I think no matter what business you are in, no matter what your role is, if you're not comfortable on camera, if you're not comfortable talking, entertaining, selling online to camera, two way with consumer, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, so live streaming for everyone mm-hmm. is important. And that's what we see, again, in China today, you can go um, and do your professional education. Like a, b- before you go to university, right? You have this professional education, the people that do not go to higher education, they have this college thing. Yeah. And you, you, previously you could get a diploma in sales and become a salesperson right now. The sales diploma comes with live streaming skills. So for two years, you are training uh, how to write scripts, how to uh, have that energy, how to talk, how to manage. And uh, a lot of government officials are live streaming about their district to introduce investment opportunities, introduce products, etc. We have farmers live streaming to sell their oranges and melons. Incredible. We have uh, <laughs> small business owners that... Uh, run noodle stores, right? With, and they make those noodles and they have five phones live streaming on various platforms. And you can place orders offline, online, delivery, and everywhere else on this platform. So live streaming is just a step towards a different future, and then we go back to this web, three kind of future, call it metaverse, call it ex- uh, extended reality, whatever that is. When 6G is with us, when this new version of format of interacting with each other um, in a blended space is established, live streaming will be holographic communication. And the skills, if you don't have those skills, um, again, video, uh, presenting yourself, writing scripts, being relevant, um, Punchlines, da 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 da. It's going to be much more difficult for you to catch up then because technological element will also come on top. So practice your live streaming skills right now. Um, talk to I do not know media if you don't have live streaming platforms in your country. Talk to media. Record yourself on videos. I do not know. <laughs> do something, but practice that skill and practice makes perfect. If if um, Chinese um, shoe seller can do it, you can too.
0: Incredible! Wow. Okay, I did not expect that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant insight. So live streaming, we all need to get better at this. And I guess at the end of the day, if you're in business, no matter what role you have, you're selling something. Whether it's internally, externally, whether it's an idea, a concept, or trying to get some budget to go and develop your China strategy, um, learning how to sell is is really important. And learning how to live stream, I guess, will be the next step. So I'm going to go and start learning more about live streaming. Amazing, Ashley. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day and week, and good luck with this upcoming Chinese New Year. I'll be looking at everything that you're sharing. And for anyone who wants to learn more, follow Ashley on LinkedIn. It's Ashley Dudaranuk and she's sharing every day, super rich insights for uh, upskilling, I think, the whole world on everything to do with China and the digital ecosystem.
1: Thank you so much, Ashley. Very grateful to be here and let's go get them, guys. Woohoo! Yes.
0: Thank you for listening to Tech Powered Luxury, your weekly podcast on all things luxury and tech. If you have enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and follow Tech Powered Luxury on Instagram, TikTok, Snap, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter. Tech Powered Luxury is proud to partner with GladCloud, the platform that is powering our media campaigns through its collaborative social media marketing platform, which is perhaps how you have discovered the podcast today. We'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas, questions, or would like to join us as a guest.